0: Hello, I'm Jason Lewis. And I'm Todd Descheide. Welcome to Climate Optimus. This week, we're going to dig into solar energy. You excited?
1: I'm so pumped. <laughs> Before we do that, though, sorry to cut you off, but not really.
0: That's normal. Since
1: you're sitting here now, I guess I can make the safe assumption that one way or other, you got your old ass off the hill down here from hood to coast. It's true. For those who don't know hood to coast is this big relay. Basically they start up at the top of Mount hood, which is near here in Portland, Oregon. And then they run this big relay with a, how many people is it in the team? Six, 12, 12. Oh yes. 12. It's a long ways from Mount hood to the
0: coast. 199 miles.
1: Okay. Yeah. How many legs do each of you
0: run? We each run three, roughly five miles a pop. Okay. And yet again, I didn't train as much as I should have. And you think I would have learned the first two times that I didn't train enough? But this time, I think I trained less than the other two times, and I hurt more. <laughs> <laughs> Which begs the question, why am I doing it in the first place? So before we dig into solar, wanted to start out with this week's reason for hope and a breakthrough in steel. That's steel manufacturing. Depending on whose analysis you use, steel accounts for upwards of 11% of global greenhouse gas emissions. So significant. It's a chunk. It is a chunk. And this Swedish firm called Hybrid just produced back in July the first piece of what they're calling green steel. So completely carbon free. That's That's something else. Yeah, I thought that was pretty amazing, and I don't pretend to understand all the nuances of making steel, but instead of using, you know, what's normally a lot of coal, they used hydrogen generated from renewable energy to complete the process. Huh. Yeah, and and that first batch, I guess, went to Volvo. Cool. I don't know if you remember, but it made me wonder whether it's part of their Polestar project where they're building that luxury electric car
1: right big carbon neutral electric car what was it uh carbon zero or i think it's yeah the first car with like net zero net zero yeah carbon emissions that's the that's the word i was looking for it's a big word <laughs> <laughs> when you're talking about the steel the process either either picture like some blacksmith In medieval times, it's just like taking stuff in and out of fires and beating it with hammers. (laughs) Or I think of like the scene at the end of Terminator 2 when he goes down into the lava pit. That's pretty much what I think of when people talk about making steel.
0: (laughs) But then it begs the question, was T2 made of steel? And is that why he melted? I don't know. He melted, though,
1: in that lava.
0: So... A big breakthrough for sure, and Hybrids planning to have an industrial scale facility in place by 2026, which is only five years away. Pivoting to our main topic, solar energy has truly undergone a transformation in the past 15 years, moving from a mostly novelty energy source to a major player in our energy economy. You know, it used to be, at least I think of it back in the day, as sort of the the thing that you're Friendly hippie neighbor would have on the top of their house is like a solar panel, and now when you you know drive anywhere, you're running into solar farms. Residential solar has exploded. It's it's no longer something that's on the fringes, and it really is is now a huge facet of our energy infrastructure. Yeah, we just went to Eastern
1: Oregon and to see the family, and uh, there's some solar farms out that way
0: now. You know, not just the wind turbines. So for those who like numbers, solar over the last decade has grown year over year by about 40%, which is massive. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, I don't know about you, but I can't think of another industry that has had that much growth, at least in, in the near term. Solar for you know 2021 is expected to be roughly 40% of all new generation capacity. And if you put wind in there, it brings a total to about 80%. So, you know, hopeful numbers when you're talking about climate change to see 80% of our new generation coming from renewable energy. Yeah, that's awesome. So we've invited a guest today to help us better understand solar energy, sort of what's behind the rapid growth, as well as what challenges lie ahead. Jochen Wiesman is the director of delivery at One Energy Renewables, a solar developer firm in Seattle, Washington. Between wind and solar, he's had over 20 years' experience working in renewables and managed the construction of projects around the globe, from the U.S. to Canada to Germany and even Egypt. Awesome. I'm stoked. Jochen, welcome to Climate Optimist.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: So we'll start out with a question that we're trying to ask all our guests now, which is, when it comes to tackling climate change, what gives you hope?
2: Yeah, uh, I, I think in, in general, the uh, the most recent developments in society with regards to Black Lives Matter, the pandemic, <laughs> really uh, shook people a little bit. And, and with the clear signs that are happening in nature right now with burning forests, I really hope that people have grown to be really aware and that there's some dynamic and some movement to support the right measures. But really, from a you know industry perspective, what I've seen over the years is, is how competitive the technology really has become. Right. And it is, in fact, faster, cheaper, and bankable to build renewable energy today. And it outcompetes fossil fuels today. And so um, with that trend continuing, I'm very hopeful that we can make a change.
0: Yeah, it's exciting to hear you say that.
2: So why don't we start out before we get into
0: kind of the the nitty gritty of solar, kind of giving folks some basics on the sense of scale.
2: Mm-hmm. So- yeah, yeah. So the first thing to understand is is solar is not equal to solar. So you have, you know, the solar modules on on people's roofs. You have commercial and industrial. That's your IKEA and your Home Depot that have solar modules on their roofs. Then you have community solar projects ranging five hundred kilowatts to one and a half two megawatts and uh, then utility scale which is uh, you know larger ground mounted systems and uh, a decent size utility scale project maybe has 100 megawatts it can go from like 30 to 300 megawatts really but uh, you're looking at a 1,000 acres maybe on, 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 on land that you wouldn't need for, for that. I'm assuming always 10, 10 acres per, per megawatt. And so just to give that a little bit of a perspective, a nuclear power plant, for example, produces a gigawatt, has a capacity of one gigawatt. And if you want to compare that to solar, you would have uh, the uh, 1,000 acres times 10 as space requirement to install an equivalent amount of solar.
0: So roughly 10,000 acres to yeah. get to the size of a kind of typical nuclear power station.
2: Exactly, yeah. And you, you're not going to see that, obviously, in one spot. Uh, solar is, is distributed. You, you get you know your 50 megawatt project here, your 100 megawatt, maybe 200 there, and you feed all energy into the grid, kind of a big bucket that you fill and deplete of electricity.
0: And you mentioned basically at roughly 100 megawatt, if I heard you correctly, resulting in... About a thousand acres, mm-hmm. and then, on average, how many homes is a hundred megawatt you know solar farm going to power?
2: Yeah, it's just roughly around nine nineteen thousand homes. And then, as far as where we are in the United States
0: today, I know solar's been growing quickly. Roughly, how many
2: you know gigawatts of solar are we sitting at? Uh, with regards to the solar capacity, we're looking at right now one hundred and three gigawatt. So that would be an equivalent of around 19 million homes that are powered by, by solar.
0: Well, and that leads into, I think, a question that many of us have is what's really led to the, the massive growth? And I mean, those that have been paying attention have seen that there's been a ton of growth in solar. What's really led to that over the last decade?
2: The most important factor here probably is cost reductions in solar. So, you know, it's the the cost for solar projects has just gone down year over year, everything from equipment pricing to uh, more efficient systems to more efficient ways to engineer the systems. Um, there's other factors too that really uh, played a big role in the past still do, and that's you know trust of financing partners to to give uh, money to these projects, construction financing or tax equity financing. You have the uh, the federal uh, support with investment tax credit ITC that uh, has been out there uh, for for many years, which was a key driver for the industry really to develop. But um, you know that is the same with with other. Power sources, like in the sixties, nuclear was heavily subsidized to to develop the technology, and then uh, you know then you have the socioeconomic uh, impact, right? So more and more companies want to be part of the solution uh, because the clients pay attention to it, and you have companies that want to uh, put on their advertisement that you know they source the energy from renewables, and this is where the customers that come to the table and uh, that that are interested to build solar, right, or wind for that sake.
0: So when folks are seeing a solar farm when they're driving down the road these days, what are, from a development perspective, what are the high-level steps that are involved in getting a solar farm put in place?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I would almost venture to say it's similar to if you want to build a house, you know, you need to find land that uh, is suitable and satisfies your needs. You need to find a spot where to connect that plant, that is a point of interconnection we call it. And that can be a transmission line with the right voltage and capacity or a substation, an existing substation. You need to go through the uh, permitting process. You have to do, or leading necessary for permitting is, is that you have to do certain studies. That is, you have to assess that plant's impact to nature and neighbors. And so you have wetland studies, cultural, what's under, underneath the surface. Uh, you want to know how water runoff takes place. You don't want to create more burden to the neighbors. And then you go through an engineering phase, procurement, construction. mid Midsize project, let's say 50 to 100 megawatts. You can be as quick as two years, two and a half years from finding the land to producing the first kilowatt hour with uh, smaller projects, y- you can run through that development cycle to the first kilowatt hour within eighteen months. That's very fast' well, especially um,
0: fast when you compare it to like a you know typical natural gas plant which might take a decade. Exactly.
2: Uh, Communities and authorities are getting used to solar now where this is not the first time anymore that they go through the effort, permitting applications and so forth. In, In comparison to fossil power plants, it's much, much quicker.
0: Yeah, it seems like less constraints. And I'm hearing that because, you know, these authorities that are doing the reviews are getting more acclimated to it, that that's accelerating the process. And I'm imagining even on the financing side, too, that things have gotten easier with time.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. Technology has matured. Banks have gone through the process enough times, have reviewed assessments of how reliable technology has become. And there's historic data available uh, nowadays. And so, yeah, bankability, we call it, has grown substantially And so we are getting our hands on on construction loans at very competitive rates. So
0: recognizing that solar has grown rapidly, but that it's going to need to continue to expand if we're going to get to where we need to with climate change. What sort of policy mechanisms, I mean, in a basic sense, you know, can we be advocating for to ensure that solar has what it needs to be
2: to be able to reach those targets? Yeah, um, in my view, it's a combination of a few different uh, approaches. So what I've witnessed throughout my career, and you know, I came to the U.S. in 20, 2005, and so I've witnessed the boom and bust cycle in renewables uh, more than once, and, you know, with really bad consequences I I have worked with 10 project managers and I had to let go 8 of them one year over the other just because wow. the PTC was expected to expire in wind that has been in the industry the up and down and this volatility and you know I, I lived in Germany and Germany early on established a program that went over 20 years and was never changed it was a slow degradation of subsidies and, and everybody knew what was expected and there was no hedging of bets if you will if we manage here in the U.S. to really put a long-lasting policy in place uh, that is that everybody can count on, that would be really super helpful. We talked about the ITC in the past, the investment tax credit, that is set to expire in, in, in certain steps. And so I guess that's, uh, that's being put in place. So
0: I'm hearing predictability around the subsidies or incentives, whatever those are, whether that's a continuation of the investment tax credit and having it yep. you know slowly phase out or something like a price on carbon or what have you but just that there's predictability from a finance perspective and so that trickles down. So I think we've all heard by now you know that one of the the big drawbacks or you know challenges per se of going to 100% renewable is the variability of renewable energy whether that's solar or wind and In the case of solar, obviously, we've got energy available when the sun is out, but that doesn't necessarily match up with demand. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how solar production matches demand and where storage fits into that picture in terms of producing what's needed in terms of demand.
2: Yeah. um, So... I'm an old wind guy, and so the intermittency problem is a little bit more pronounced there because, you know, wind does not blow as regularly as the sun is going up every morning. Right. And so, but uh, for solar, solar is is fairly predictable. Plants are typically over-engineered or, you know, you have more capacity than you need. And so you have nameplate capacity over a long time during the day. But... There's, it's called the load curve, that is, you know, how many consumers do you have, you know, the analogy with a bucket always makes sense to me, that is, you have the generators for electricity that fill up the bucket, and then there's the consumers that take the power out of the bucket, and you never want the bucket to be empty, and you now don't want it too full either. Uh, Solar in general matches that load curve fairly okay, that means, you know, during the day when most consumption is taking place, solar produces, but obviously, sometimes that is not the case for example uh, in the evenings when people come home or switch their air conditioner on in the south you will you will see that there's a lack of power in the grid and you know stability is, is not there and so uh, the trend here the last few years has been to complement solar plants in particular because the grid connections they are ready with storage and storage plants are very very similar to your car's batteries just Many, many, many more batteries all being combined in racks with cooling and with electronics to charge and discharge those batteries. Historically, though, with the advent of renewables, the the, the other large sources that are uh, quite helpful with compensating the intermittency problem is uh, combined cycle gas plants that easily ramp up and down in production, uh, as well as hydropower. Not available everywhere, and so uh, that's you know there's a lot of value in energy storage uh, with the growing percentage of renewable power being part of the mix.
0: So it sounds like solar when looking at you know solar and wind, solar matches demand a little bit better. and then if you're able to couple that with say you know a lithium ion battery at utility scale, then is the idea that you would you'd be able to charge up that battery. Overnight, So that it's there to support the times of the day when the sun isn't available or is it typically being charged when maybe you have extra capacity during, during the middle of the day when the solar plant is producing more than its nameplate capacity?
2: Yeah, a a few really interesting thoughts that you're bringing up there. Um, The batteries are typically charged during the day when the load in the grid is low and energy is cheap. Okay. And the batteries are discharged when you pay top dollars per the kilowatt hour in the grid, and so it can be a very compelling business case to have batteries uh, combined with your plant, uh, because you're basically ab- you are able to discharge the batteries when power is very expensive. You make a lot of money with it, right? And those are the times during the night. Typically, it's peak hours, like evening, uh, when people, know, help people come work? home. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. You also mentioned that uh, to charge uh, batteries uh, at, at peak hours. Uh, I touched on that earlier, and that is the, um, the fact that solar plants are uh, having access capacity. So i give you an example. You install 100 megawatt AC that connects to the grid. You typically build around 130 megawatts in solar and DC capacity. So you're overbuilding a little bit. That's exactly right. And so uh, that way you can actually expand the time that you have nameplate capacity AC in the morning and in the evening because the sun's angle to hit the panels is not ideal. But with overcapacity, you produce nameplate capacity regardless.
0: So you get a nice block of
2: power. there. Exactly, exactly.
0: Well, it sounds like a lot of exciting things on the horizon when it comes to storage and, you know, taking solar from a variable resource to something that really can provide energy when we need it.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm looking back to now 22 years in renewables and, you know, I've seen wind turbine grow in size and very fast growth in, in, in technology. And, yeah, it's been a, it's been a very exciting time. To, to work in solar and then wind.
0: well thanks so much for taking the time to come on Climate Optimist and share some of your perspective on solar and definitely gets me excited to think about not only where the industry is today but where it's going and yeah look forward to hearing from you again down the road
2: yeah how could I have missed this chance to talk a little bit to you thanks
0: so Todd listening to Jochen talk about Solar, the industry at large, et cetera. What did you think?
1: Well, I was first disappointed because what I wanted to hear was that at some point in the near future, I would see Jochen Wiesman on the top of my house installing solar panels on my roof. (laughs) And judging from the conversation, it seems like he's going to be too busy and that's probably not going to
0: happen. I mean, maybe you can call it a favor.
1: Well, I mean, we should. I should preface some of this by the fact that we we know Jochen Wiesmann uh, fairly well, and he hasn't forgotten a thing I taught him, even <laughs> about speaking German. So, but that being said, I thought it was a great interview, and you know, I mean, one of the things I think I quoted of him. He said, "You have to find land, one gigawatt for ten thousand acres." That does seem a considerable amount of space when you think of a like a nuclear plant can do that in probably like 500 600
0: acres so it's definitely a striking difference I think the key is going to be just being thoughtful about where we where we put this you know solar capacity that we're going to need
1: you know the other thing I, I took away from it is I felt like we've been talking a lot about in recent episodes about the current budget plan and incentives the solar story here in the past 10 20 years is like a textbook example of why that stuff is so important you know solar and the ITC it's funny cuz he mentioned the his the the german comparison which is really we're kind of getting close to 20 years you know he talked about how the, in germany they came up with their 20 year plan right difference being here is that this was never a 20 year pl- you know it never had that kind of consistency they renewed it a couple different times they extended it in 2008 for like 8 years which that was a big chunk And then they extended it again in 2015 to 2020. But you can see these little small steps, which probably doesn't give some of that financial stability as you'd want. Even so, since 2009, the cost of installing solar is reduced by 90%. It's huge. Which is just crazy.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. It's clear that the ITC has made a huge positive impact. And it, it arguably could have had more of a positive impact had it been conceived in this, you know, long term time horizon where instead of talking about a couple years at a time, you you are talking like, you know, that German model you referenced, more of the, you know, ten to twenty year horizon. And if you're gonna ramp it down to have that be spelled out in the beginning so that folks on the financing side and within the industry understand what, what's coming. Otherwise you inevitably end up getting close to where it's set to expire and that generates all this confusion for the industry so yeah absolutely having that predictability makes a huge difference both on the financing side to your point and for the industry at large that's trying to install capacity and forecast based on these tax incentives
1: it does seem like it would be beneficial to put some incentives in for storage, and you could kind of see maybe some of those same gains with technology. Maybe in 20 years, you know, you, storage is
0: improved as much as, you know, solar did, solar and wind. I, I totally agree. I, I think when we look at solar and wind and the rapid expansion of both, really the only limiter at this point is having storage be available so that those can go from being variable resources to taking on the role of baseload power, right? Like mm-hmm. you would have with traditional fossil fuels.
1: Yeah. And and I think to reiterate, big takeaway of the interview was just
0: how much the cost has come down. Yeah. It's almost a paradigm shift when you think about it. There was a, definitely a day when wind and solar weren't as competitive and you needed subsidies. And now thinking about both those technologies being on par or cheaper than natural gas, which is your least expensive fossil fuel right it's huge yeah so on these podcasts we always ask ourselves what can we do to help advance these solutions and in the case of solar we have the infrastructure plan in front of us and so i think it's important as part of that those negotiations to be asking our members of congress to support subsidies for storage like we were talking about putting in place a price on carbon like a carbon tax with a complimentary dividend, which would give another leg up to renewable energy, regardless of the technology. And obviously, if the bipartisan infrastructure bill passes, there will be a lot of positive investments in the grid, which is critical for solar being able to scale up and meet our long-term demand. So pick up the phone. Go to our website if you want talking points, want to look up your member of Congress's phone number. As always, it's not important that it's eloquent. What's important is that they're hearing from a constituent who is expressing concern about climate change and advocating for policies that are going to help us accelerate our transition to 100% carbon-free energy. So with that, thanks for tuning in. Come back next week for more climate solutions, reason for hope, and ways each of us can make a difference. Climate Optimist is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at co. That's climateoptimists.co. Follow us on social at Climate Stewards Collective.